It's Friday, 25th of November, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So our global team talked this week about the resilience of the recent data that's been coming in, and it's something we touched on during last week's podcast. We've had another slew of numbers over the last few days. That includes the flash PMIs for November. What have we learned in terms of the economic outlook and this whole recession question? Well, I think that the thing that's probably changed again this week is that the data have shown the continued resilience, but there's also this continuing divergence between what the hard activity data are telling us. So actual activity data measuring things like production and spending by companies and households and the surveys are telling us. So things like the PMIs uh, in terms of what businesses are telling us about the outlook. The surveys, the soft data have continued to be pretty weak and pointing to recessionary levels of of activity, but the hard data have remained relatively resilient. This week, it was the turn of durable goods in the US to surprise on the upside. And it's particularly in the US, actually, where the hard data have been surprisingly strong. Also, we had got some upward revisions to Germany's Q3 GDP data as well. So hard activity data, pretty resilient. Surveys, not quite as bad as we anticipated this week, but still at levels, at least in Europe, that are consistent with recessions. In the coming week, we'll get the ISM manufacturing in the US, the survey there. The key thing there to watch will be whether or not it drops below the crucial 50 mark that marks the threshold between expansion and contraction. So on this recession question, our recession tracker was out this week. It's flashing red, isn't it? It's saying it says a 90% chance of recession in the coming six months. And the point that Paul Ashworth, our chief US economist, is making is that we've had 400 basis points of tightening from the Fed, and and that's not chopped liver, is it? So the message is that with rates up that much already, there's a sort of inevitability about a recession coming. Is that something that, that applies globally as well? Yes, I think it is. I mean, if anything, I think there's reasons to think that the the US, the prospects of a recession in the US is perhaps less likely than elsewhere, actually. So that the recession indicator that you mentioned is our proprietary series for the US that Paul and his team have put together. It's on the website. You can download it and, and use it in, in, in your work if you want. And that is pointing to, like you say, a 90% chance of probability that the US is in recession in six months' time. It's never been that high in the six or seven decades worth of data that we have, and a recession has not subsequently followed. So at least on the basis of this indicator, it looks like a recession is inevitable. And what's more, there's good economic reasons for thinking that a recession is inevitable too, given the extent of monetary tightening and tightening of financial conditions. So if your economic analysis is telling you the same thing that your proprietary recession models are telling you, I think it pays to to listen to them. Now, in Europe, I think the situation is even more difficult. Okay, On the production side of Europe's economy, I think one of the things that has given some support to the recent data has been that supply constraints are easing, particularly in the auto sector. That's been a source of strength in Germany. But on the demand side, not only have you had tighter monetary policy, higher interest rates, increasing debt servicing costs for households and businesses, you've also had this enormous terms of trade shock from higher energy prices. Now, Gas prices have dropped back a bit in wholesale markets, actually a fair bit over the past month or so. But it doesn't really change the broader picture on the terms of trade, which is there's been this huge hit in Europe, and that's going to manifest itself in a big squeeze coming down the track in real income. So there's even more reason, I think, to think a recession's coming in, in Europe than, than is the case in the US. 
We've also had Fed minutes this week, and they suggested rates may go higher than previously expected, or at least some participants on the FOMC. But also, again, going back to this idea that the impact of the tightening, there does seem to be a, a growing concern within those minutes about the risks of over-tightening. And I know the Fed is ahead of at least some central banks in the amount of, of tightening they've pushed through so far. But do you think they're an outlier here in, in terms of that concern about taking things too far? If they're not an outlier, then they're certainly ahead of other central banks. Obviously, they've been, they were the first to start raising interest rates. They've tightened policy further and faster than, than other central banks. And central banks, the Bank of England, the ECB, elsewhere in the developed world, they're still focused very squarely on, on inflation and getting inflation down rather than the, the, the risks of over-tightening. We still have ECB officials, for example, talking up the possibility of maybe a 75 basis points increase in rates when the bank next meets, the governing council next meets. We're forecasting a 50, but perhaps wouldn't roll out a 75 given some of the recent comments. Isabel Schnabel, who's a member of the governing council at the ECB, talking about the need to pay more attention to actual rates of inflation and see those starting to fall back decisively rather than just uh, forecasted paths of inflation. So I think the ECB in particular, but frankly, the Bank of England too, is still in, in inflation-fighting mode rather than paying too much attention to the cumulative amount of tightening and, and the impact that's having on the real economy. And it's interesting, going back to the to the PMIs, there seems to be this, this divergence where you have the, the manufacturing PMIs, which suggest that price pressures might be abating somewhat. But then the services PMIs seem to show inflation remains very much a threat. How do these numbers fit with our broad view on how inflation dynamics are developing in these advanced economies? Well, I think there's there's now pretty clear evidence in the surveys and frankly, the data, that goods inflation is starting to come down and come down pretty sharply as well. That's true of the US. It's also true to, to some extent in, in Europe as well. Services inflation is more difficult, I think, to get a read on, partly because we need to get a proper read on what's happening in the labor market and the outlook there. And for all the, the, the reasons that we've discussed on these podcasts and other drop-ins with our clients, the labor markets are very difficult to read at the moment, labor market dynamics. Nonetheless, the, the, the October CPI data from the US, there was a, some glimmers of hope there that services inflation was coming down. There's good reasons to think in the US that medical services inflation will remain, will, will continue to edge down, that rental, housing and shelter inflation will continue to, to trend down too. So in the US, our chief US economist, Paul Ashworth and his team are pretty convinced that actually, of course, you know, one month's data isn't a trend, but this could be the start of a trend and that that services inflation will start to trend lower over the next year. There's a challenge, isn't there? Because we're looking at these monthly data points and there's a lot of a lot of information coming in. There's frankly a lot of noise out there. And we've been remarking on how how mixed this data is and, and really how difficult it is to get a very clear picture of what's going on. And I think that's reflected in a lot of central bank rhetoric as well. We had Kashgari from the Fed talking about the uncertainty and the problems with using their current models at the moment. So from a client perspective, are there any data points that they, they should be watching to understand how this growth inflation cycle is, is evolving? Or is it just that, you know, we live in unusually uncertain times and that we and, and that policymakers as well have to adapt? I think there's an element to that. Obviously, we, we spoke about this last week and I wrote about it in my note a couple of weeks ago, that when your forecasting models have started to break down and they've been proven to be somewhat unreliable, you've, you've been caught out, then you're 
naturally pay more attention to the incoming rates of inflation rather than the forecasted path of inflation. So to some extent, I think they're going to want to see inflation come down in a clear and decisive way, core inflation in particular starting to, to abate. And of course, because monetary policy operates with a lag, just what by means of waiting for that core inflation to come down, there's got to be a reasonable chance that they they overdo things and and, and over tighten. So yeah, we we will we'll obviously pay very close attention to the survey data. The labour market's absolutely crucial, and we'll get more information on the US side in the payrolls data due this coming week. But it's is all about inflation and core inflation in particular, and that's what central banks going to be paying very very close attention to. So that was Neil Shearing talking about monetary tightening so far and what we know and what we don't know about how that will impact growth and inflation in the coming quarters. For the most part, emerging market central banks are further down the path of monetary tightening than their DM peers. In fact, we think many have stopped tightening altogether, having raised rates by nearly 500 basis points on average. All of that means that households and corporates in those economies are going to have to pay a lot more to service their debt in the coming year. Liam Peach on our EM team knows that private sector debt has doubled in emerging markets since 2008, and that raises the question of how much risk these economies face and which are most exposed. Liam's just published a major report which looks at private sector debt risks across emerging markets. Earlier this week, he spoke to his colleague Shilin Shah about some of the key findings. Here's that discussion, and it starts with Shilin talking about what's changed over the years with the EM sovereign debt picture. So we've spent a lot of ink talking about sovereign debt risks in EMs in the context of the stronger dollar this year. Sri Lanka, for example, has already defaulted on its dollar debts. There are problems brewing in several other frontier markets too. Ghana and Tunisia appear quite vulnerable in particular. But among the major emerging markets, debt risks on the sovereign side, at least, do look fairly low. I think part of that is a function of the fact that many Major emerging markets now have flexible exchange rate regimes, at least a lot more so than compared to a couple of decades ago. There are fewer major emerging markets that are borrowing heavily in, in foreign currency as well. Rising domestic interest rates does perhaps pose a few more problems for sovereigns. But even there, lots of emerging market debt tends to be issued at quite long maturities and has a very strong domestic investor base as well. But on the private sector side, is that is that something that's that looks quite similar, Liam? How do how do the risks stack up stack up on the private sector? Yeah, it's a good question, Chillen. Yeah, what we what we've seen over the past year and a half or so is one of the most aggressive tightening cycles in the in the EM world, and it's been an incredibly synchronized tightening cycle. And that's coming after a period in which EM private sector debt has risen to record highs. So it raises the concern that a lot of EMs are now more vulnerable to rising domestic interest rates than they have been in the past. Uh, we've tried to do some research into this, trying to look exactly where the vulnerabilities lie. And uh, based on some of the work we've done, you know, Brazil and Chile really stand out as, as two, two countries where private sector debt is most at risk. These are countries that are facing quite large increases in interest rates over a short period of time. I think we're talking uh, in terms of central bank policy rates of more than a thousand basis points. And both countries have seen quite a large increase in private sector debt levels over the past decade. Yeah, we think next year, based on how far interest rates have risen, that debt interest service ratios, so the, the percent of income that's spent servicing debt, could rise to, to levels last seen in the early 2000s, if not higher in both those countries. That's quite a significant rise. 
In some of the other EMs, the two that we would probably highlight are Korea and Hungary. In Korea, we're expecting quite a large rise in household debt interest service ratio because that comes after a period in which household debt income ratios have risen very sharply over the past decade too. And we think the interest service ratio there could rise to a level that hasn't been seen over the past two decades. And in Hungary, most of the increase is being driven by quite a sharp rise in interest rates. If you remember that Hungary's been living with very low interest rates for quite a few years now, and all of a sudden it's moved into this very high interest rate environment. And we think in particular, some of the non-financial corporates, the non-financial corporate sector looks most exposed there. We're we're looking at an interest service ratio rising perhaps to 20% from around 5% in, in 2019. So a very sharp increase in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's particularly concerning in the case of Hungary, isn't it? I know that you've also written about the impact of the the collapse in the forints as well and, and how that could expose problems on balance sheets, given quite high levels of FX debts. In your analysis, though, you do mention some areas of resilience as well, don't you? One example would be some countries in Asia where central banks have had to tighten policy by less than in some of the other EM regions. You do also mention how debt risks in, in, in non-financial corporates generally look low in some EMs because leverage in countries that are facing rising debt services is quite low. How encouraging is this? I think I think it is is partly encouraging that non-financial corporates, at least in the emerging markets that we've we've looked at, some of the bigger ones, they are coming into this period of very high interest rates with quite low debt ratios, particularly when you take into account the amount of cash they hold. Net debt ratios in, in many non-financial corporate sectors are lower than they have been in more than a decade. So that's, that's quite a strong balance sheet as the starting point. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that the, the rising interest rates we're seeing and the rise in debt interest service may not be the trigger for, for problems in some of these EMs. So I think what the rise in debt interest service ratios might do is that it it may expose some of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities that we do see. It may expose some of those balance sheets that are that are highly leveraged in the household and non-financial corporate sector. It may also expose some of those, those weaknesses where households or firms hold very low cash or liquid assets. So it might not be the rise in interest rates on its own that causes problems, but it makes those economies much more vulnerable to to shocks. And one of those shocks could be a hit to corporate revenues if we get a, a deep downturn. And particularly in the case of emerging markets, where a lot of these firms are export orientated, if we get a deep downturn in the global economy, that could have a big impact on their revenues. At a time in which these these rising interest rates is feeding through, that could be the the trigger for problems. So it might not be the rise in interest rates on its own, but in conjunction with some other shocks, that makes economies a lot more vulnerable. And we are we are seeing some signs of these risks already starting to play out. You know, on our Latin American service, we've already talked about how one of Bra- one of Brazil's largest banks has made quite large provisions for loan losses. And that's had quite a big impact on on the stock market there. In some of the Q3 GDP data that have been released in the past few weeks, we we've seen signs that household spending has fallen quite sharply in Chile and Colombia. We've seen contractions in Q1, Q terms and Q3. Those are two countries that we highlighted as as ones particularly vulnerable to rising interest rates because household savings in these countries are very low. They're actually negative in Chile. Households are actually running down savings there. And households in both countries have very low liquid assets. So we're already starting to see that play out. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Chile and Colombia in particular, I mean, two countries that we are forecasting recessions in over the next over the next few quarters. And I think a lot of what you've spoken about 
so far really feeds into this overall sense that emerging markets uh, are in for a, a period of fairly lackluster growth for the next couple of years. It's just one of several factors weighing on the outlook, I think. I mean, we have recessions forecast in Central and Eastern Europe, for example, partly driven by the energy crisis. You already touched upon the the weakness of global demand, which is going to weigh on um, exports. That's particularly concerning for certain places in Asia, but also Latin America as well. And if all of this comes alongside a fall in commodity prices, then the terms of trade hit to, to parts of Latin America going to weigh on prospects as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I might just add one more point to that, which we in, in Central and Eastern Europe, for example, where we're seeing quite a lot of headwinds come from the energy crisis. The Hungarian Central Bank published its financial stability report recently and talked about expectations for a rise in non-performing loans in the mortgage sector, not necessarily because of rising interest rates, but because of the energy crisis. So it just adds to that sense that, you know, a lot of other factors, a lot of other headwinds are all coming together at one point. And I think in Central Europe in particular, we could be looking at protracted recessions there over the coming quarters. I was just going to ask another question, Shilin. Yeah, if we're talking about you know quite weak, talking about quite weak outlook for growth in some of these emerging markets, how do you think central banks are going to balance that with their inflation mandates? I suppose what we've seen in some advanced economies in recent months is signs of some central banks becoming a little bit more sensitive to the weakening growth outlook. How do you think some of these emerging market central banks are going to deal with that going forward? Yeah, certainly I think concerns about the economy and growth are going to increasingly come to the fore. I mean, we've seen some central banks in Latin America and Central and Eastern Europe already bring their timing cycles to a halt. Brazil and Chile, for example, but also um, the Czech Republic. I think a lot of it d- depends on not necessarily inflation reaching central bank targets. We think that that's not going to happen in lots of places for many quarters. But central banks will probably need to see signs that inflation is inflation rates are at least coming down substantially. So that doesn't look likely, at least on our forecast, that doesn't look likely to happen immediately. We do think that inflation has peaked in a number of countries, but that inflation rates are going to stay quite high. And it's only around the sort of middle of next year where we get more substantial drops in inflation. If that comes alongside some of these headwinds that we've spoken about starting to really show, then I think that that could be the trigger for rate hikes to come onto the agenda, at least in some in some economies across the emerging world. I think also there is the global context, the global environment to consider in all of this as well. It's not necessarily the case, and it hasn't been for the past few cycles, really, that EMs need to wait for the Fed to move in order for interest rate moves to come onto the agenda anymore. But I do think that given the um, the strength of the dollar, for example, rising US Treasury yields, those are still reasons for central banks to keep policy fairly tight. So it's only when we get a turn or signs of a turn in the cycle in developed markets, in particular the US, that rate cuts will, will come onto the agenda. And, and, and we think that that might be around the middle of next year. And that's it for this episode. All of our analysis on what the latest data mean in terms of recession, including our proprietary recession trackers, as well as Liam's report and much more can be found on our website at capitaleconomics.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. But until next week, goodbye.